Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Britflix.com Frightfest Preview Podcast. Today I've got with me, please introduce yourself. Uh, hi, I'm Jez Meddinger. I am the producer and co-director of After Death. And can you please give us a brief synopsis of After Death? Uh, After Death is a uh, movie about five nightclubbers who find themselves washed up in an alien environment that they come to believe may be hell. That's the very brief synopsis. I mean, I could go on, but you start to get spoiler territory. No, that's a, that's a good setup. I'm, we're, we're, yeah. you, you, you feel yourself lurching to the question of what happens next, and that's <laughs> that's the, that's the right place to be after giving a brief synopsis. I think. Yeah. And in terms of if fifty fifty is equal parts scares to equal parts gore, and I've, I've I've since had somebody adding others to that ratio, such as mystery and whatever. So you can you yeah. can you can create a, yeah. a ratio of what you want. What is what is the ratio of your movie? Well, my my movie is not one that depends on gore, and in fact, the very setup of it being based in a world where the characters are uh, already dead uh, means that gore is somewhat redundant. Um, so, I would say that the ratio of scares to uh, to gore is certainly in a favour of scares. However, I would say the movie is also a, a fairly sophisticated movie, and I could also describe it as um, as as much a sci-fi mystery as it is a horror. So on those grounds, if you were to introduce mystery into the mix as well, yeah. I would probably say it's something like uh, 50% 50%, mis- well, even 60% mystery, 38% scares and 2% gore. <laughs> That's a very precise measure. I like your style. Yeah. So yeah. when and where is it showing at Frightfest this year? Uh, it's showing at 1 o'clock uh, on Friday the 28th of August. Um, and that's the UK premiere. And I believe it's happening in the View Leicester Square with everything else. If it's the U- UK premiere, then where, where's it already been shown? Uh, it's already been shown, uh, well, our, our, our European and indeed world premiere was at a festival called Nocturna in Madrid, uh, where we won uh, Best Film in the Dark Vision section. Um, and I went out there and it was an incredible experience to, you know, it was my first experience with a feature film at a festival. Um, and it really was incredibly exciting to see an audience embrace it in the way that they did. Um, yeah. Spanish audience too. And it's not, it's not, you know, 
I was a bit concerned about how well the movie was going to translate because um, the nature of the movie is, again, that mystery element. So if you miss something, and if you miss something in the translation, then it makes it a little bit more difficult to sort of hang on. But, but, but yeah, the Spanish audience loved it. Um, it went down incredibly well. And, um, and stepping out to sort of receive an award in front of 100 people was quite uh, intimidating, but an amazing experience at the same time. Now, in the, in the, now, if you look at the process of making the movie, which is something we like to do with BritFlix, because certainly making, making any film in Britain is, is an achievement. So it's always good to look at how, what the challenges were making a film. If we start with the scripting stage, you as the producer and, and co-director, what what do you remember being the hardest challenges to resolve in the storytelling? Uh, the well, screenplay? well, perhaps. I mean, if I start, if I go back to this, was the genesis of the film. Sure, uh, sure. Uh, so, so myself and Robin, uh, my sort of partner in crime in the directing stage, my co-director, yeah. uh, we've been working together for a long time, and uh, you know writing and directing narrative together for a long time as well. Mm-hmm. And one of the ideas we'd always been kicking about was um, turning the Jean, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre play We Clos into a, into a film because it had this premise which was essentially, uh, you know, three people trapped in a room and that room was hell. And the very nature of hell was being trapped with the worst people you could possibly imagine for eternity. Um, and whilst the play itself wasn't inherently that cinematic, there was something in the premise that was... And we'd sort of battered it around for maybe 10 years as an idea. But, but finally, I sat down and thought, if I was going to turn this into a film, how would it work? Um, and I wrote originally a 10-page um, a treatment um, for what I thought this film could be. Okay. And, um, and originally, I was intending to write the script. Um, but I also wanted to make the film fairly quickly. Um, so I didn't want to be spending too long doing multiple drafts of the script while still wrestling with big story problems. Um, and there was a, a story, um, well, a script editor and screenwriter called Andrew Ellard, who I, I'd, uh, I'd worked with before, or he'd given me notes on a script before. Um, so I sent my, my treatment to him to basically help me iron out any story wrinkles and try and get the, sort of the spine as straight as I could before going diving full on into the screenplay. And he, uh, he gave me an incredibly uh, incisive set of... Um, notes on the, on the treatment, but also expressed an interest in coming on board as a writer. And, uh, and I pretty much sort of bit his arm off because this was fantastic because I really thought he was ter- a terrific writer. Yeah. And this would free me up to be actually able to get on with the producing and actually get the, get the show on the road. Fantastic. Um, so, so Andrew sort of leapt off with sort of the core premise and wrote a new screen story. Um, and then the screenplay, um, Whilst at the same time, I started getting the ball rolling in terms of, you know, pulling the crew together, um, getting a casting director on board and starting the casting process. How did you find, I mean, I've interested, I mean, I'm a, I'm a screenwriter myself. How do you find that, um, freeing yourself up to sort of almost look dispassionately back at your own story in a view to sort of, you know, you're not having to judge it in terms of what work do I have to do? It's that the conversation is, how do we make this better, Andrew? <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and I guess as well, the, the way that Robin and I work, we often, you know, we write together a lot of the time as well. And if I'd written the script and then been directing it with Robin, I'd have been dealing with his notes. And that would be a slightly, uh, I mean, just from a writing perspective, a slightly um, more challenging place for us both to come from exactly the same place. Because obviously when you write something, you do sort of put your heart and soul into it. And that taking notes <coughs> is, is one that is uh, emotionally more difficult than rationally we would like it to be. 
And, and by having Andrew write this fantastic screenplay that he did, it basically meant that Robin and I could both come from exactly the same place where it wasn't either one of our babies and we could develop it, um, you know, very sort of coherently together with Andrew and steer it in a direction that we all felt was quite exciting. And how much did the sort of, uh, uh, as much as stories are challenged, how much did the production part of it challenge the screenplay? You know, what was with your producer's what, hat on, which where, you know, resources are well, finite. The, well, this was it. I mean, the, the idea was conceived and why the, the premise was attractive um, was because it was contained. And obviously, with anything contained, that means that, you know, you, you keep the locations down to one, pretty much. You have a small cast. And this means that you can shoot quickly and you can shoot well on a low budget. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, create uh, sort of constraints are sort of a, are a boon to creativity because when and anything is possible, it's quite easy to fall back into cliche. But when you only have a limited range of possibilities, that forces you to be very creative about what you do with them. Um, so I'd already done a recce and I'd written my, uh, my original treatment around the shooting location that we were planning to use. And when, uh, and when Andrew came on board, I sent him a recce film and a bunch of pictures of the location. And he wrote specifically to the location. There were a number of elements that the location had, which directly fed into the story um, and became very interesting. So there was a lighthouse. We, we uh, The location was out on the Norfolk coast, and there was a lighthouse in the distance there, and that becomes a key part of the story. Um, Fantastic. The actual interior of the... Um, of the of the sort of the beach shack that we were filming in became a fundamental part, and the nature of it became a fundamental sort of underpinning part of the story as well. Um, and and so in, in that way, you know, we sort of very much wrote to the opportunities that we had in the location, rather than sort of writing something and then trying to fit the production to the script. It was very much fitting, in a sense, the script to the possible production. Speaks volumes for your story, really, doesn't it? That the, the underlying story that you're able to do this. Um, well, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's one of these things where if you're trying to, you know, if your starting point for a film is, you know, well, let's, let's take, you know, a classic 12 Angry Men, which is a bunch of people in a room, then you, you know, you have to have a very tight plot progression to maintain audience interest. Mm. Um, with, with something like, um, the story that we were trying to tell, we have a little bit more scope to, um, to introduce other elements that you can't do in sort of a courthouse. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really. yeah, 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 yeah. Because we're in a supernatural world. Um, and, and that gives us the opportunity to do things they can't. Um, but at the same time, you know, you're always looking for what you can do that's really going to surprise the audience and do things they've not seen before. So, so by using the location to do that, it was a very sort of exciting and interesting way about 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 doing things that you don't often see done in films, and and that was very important for all of us. Okay, okay. Now you you kind of you, you, it's a good segue this into the, into the question of you know what what aspect when when there was obviously some things that you really want wanted to do that would yeah. seem would have seen the biggest challenges, but they were the things that weren't going to flex. So what 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 did you do? What were the breaks you got to solve those problems in terms of the shoot? So I guess I mean there was a couple of I mean, we had a very short schedule to shoot, mm -hmm. so we were looking at high page counts a day, which uh, which means that you you have to be fairly realistic about what you can achieve, and to some degree, that schedule determined our shooting style. Um, you know, you can't do a sort of a Steven Spielberg style 
opening where you have an incredibly protracted sort of four minute sort of dolly shot that turns into a crane shot into whatever shot with complicated action and blocking because you simply don't have the resources and time to be able to do that. Um, but, but certainly there were a couple of practical things that were challenging. So the first of them was the, uh, the opening scene, which is the arrival of, uh, our hero on the beach and, or heroine. And, uh, and this was a, a sort of a four or five page sequence um, which was in, in sort of a suspense slash action sequence. Um, and we would be shooting this in February, um, a very cold February. It was the coldest the North Sea had been in 25 years with an actress who's just been washed up. So absolutely sort of wet to the skin. And this wasn't ultimately practical in two degree, two degrees outside weather to have someone wet all day outside with the wind lashing in um, just absolutely impossible because, you know, after 15 minutes, you know, they'd have hypothermia. Um, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so very quickly we realized that we had to be quite smart about what to do with this. And, um, and we realized that sometimes, you know, these practical constraints can give you uh, a creative opportunity. Okay. And, um, and the creative opportunity in this case was to, to tell that story again different way um and so rather than playing it sort of conventionally uh we made that sequence uh that opening sequence a uh, point of view sequence which i think works stronger than it would have done even if we'd had the time and resources to do um to shoot it the way it was originally envisaged so we went to andrew and said we want to shoot this point of view and he said right okay um let's see how we can make this work and then he rewrote the sequence told from point of view and it was it was incredible and we you know we had to go and shoot it Oh, and it's actually one of the things I'm proudest of in, of in the film, creatively as well as narratively. Um, so that's, I guess, an example of where your sort of practical constraints can free you up in a peculiar way. Um, so, yeah. No, no, that's, that sounds amazing. I mean, that's a, that's, that's a really sort of solid example of kind of the evolution of, of, of an idea and then the practical way that you achieved what you wanted. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Without, without giving too much away... Um, or give as much away as you want. Um, yeah. What What are you most excited to see with within the film with a fright first audience and their reaction? Honestly, I'm quite excited to see how the opening sequence goes down because uh, it's it draws you in and then surprises you, and people aren't necessarily. Um, it's interesting to see what expectations people have, and I guess a fright first audience is fairly well adjusted to expecting uh you know shocks or surprises mm. um but it's always quite fun watching the audience in that opening sequence because they react in ways that maybe you don't always expect and it is a uh yeah i would say that's one of the th one of the things i enjoy the most is seeing their reaction to that um and the way it sort of draws them into the film brilliant brilliant now remind us again when can people see the movie and where uh, the movie is showing at one o'clock on Friday, the 28th of August, um, and tickets, I believe, are still available through the Frightfest website. Brilliant, brilliant. Now, we like to ask everybody that comes on the podcast to uh, to recommend us a favourite British horror movie. So, do you want to furnish us yeah. with yours? Um, well, I was I was thinking about this, and the one I would go for in terms of being uh inspirational to me um, would be An American Wolf in London and I'm calling it a British film because it's set in Britain although obviously uh, you know director and money was not um, I got I got in a lot of trouble when I did a Brit survey 
for including said film in the in the list. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it fe- it feels British to me because it, it is at least sort of set here. Um, but I grew up watching that film. We had it on VHS, and it was in- it was incredibly, you know, along with my other sort of films I grew up watching, you know, Star Wars and Back to the Future, you know, Highlander, you know, those sorts of films on loop. This was one of them. And, and there was a couple of sequences in it that sort of stayed with me. One of which in particular was uh, the opening sequence on the moors, which was just brilliantly done. And in fact, that was, um, that was a very clear reference for another sequence in, in After Death. And we used it as a template for the way that that scene works and the way that we wanted the equivalent scene for us to work in After Death. Um, what, is, what is it about the way that scene works that, that, was, that was interesting, that stuck with you and sort of I became think, influential? I think, I think it was the tension and the way the tension was built. And when you look back at the way the film's done now, the tension starts right back in the pub when they of first... Of course, yeah, yeah. And that's, and that's where the tension starts building. So even by the point at which they leave the, the pub, you're already, you already know that something bad's going to happen. Of course, and yeah, yeah. It's a question of how and, and when. Um, and, and the way that it's shot and the way that you don't see anything... But you know it's coming, and I think that's that's it. But it, but but the sort of the real the real key to that scene actually was the scene before where where you're in the pub from, where, from my perspective. I mean, obviously the actual scene on the moors is incredibly well executed, but it's the setup that takes you into the right place, you know, for that to be able to happen. Yeah, because because if you if you watch that if if you if you're able to watch that film without knowing it's a werewolf movie, then it's it's anything that's out there, isn't it? And that's kind of what's great about that pub scene. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And for me as well, I guess it was the first, it was one of the first, probably the first horror movie I'd ever seen. So it sort of defined horror movies from that point on for me, you know, and there's all sorts of, you know, imagery that stuck in my head, you know, from having seen it as a, as a seven year old that I don't think, you know, even the scenes in the tube tunnels. I remember the first time I came to London, because I, I grew up in Manchester and the first time I came to London and saw the tube tunnels, suddenly I was like, Oh my God, I feel like I'm in the film. And, you know, it was, it was incredibly sort of, yeah, so it sort of built my my psyche around that film almost in terms of my appreciation of horror. I'm from I'm from Manchester too, and it was I must admit that there's every time I go down the the one that looks like the empty corridor. Yeah, it, it always it it's, it immediately springs to mind. Yeah, it's, yeah, uh, it is a funny thing I think because we you kind of it's a bit like seeing landmarks in New York, isn't it? That you've only seen through yeah. films. Once you go there, they can only be seen as they were in the film. Yeah, exactly. What are you doing before the festival to get audiences G'd up? What plans have you got? Uh, well, one of the things we're doing, um, Andrew, uh, the screenwriter, is writing a prequel comic at the moment, which will sort of set up the the world and the antagonist uh, of After Death. Um, and that's being put together by um, a layout guy called Mike Stock. Um, so we're really, really excited to see that come together. Um, and we're going to be releasing that in the week or two before the premiere. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, we'll all keep our eyes and ears open for where that appears online. And uh, I'll make sure I tweet it when I get a link. Marvellous. Thank you very much. Well, look, so, um, do, you, do you have an official release date or how can people see this movie outside of Frightfest or is that not uh, sorted? That is, uh, well, we are looking to tie that down at the moment. We're hoping for it to be on release in the autumn, um, okay. but we're not in a position to be making announcements uh, just yet, but hopefully very soon and hopefully by, by the time Frightfest comes around. Cool. All right. Well, keep keep uh, Britflits posted and we can get that news out there once you know the dates. Marvellous. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's the Britflits Frankfurt Preview Podcast.
podcast series. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.